Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Katani. In this episode, sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific, we're taking a look at how genomic technologies are transforming cancer care, now and in the future, and the importance of making sure that these advances are available to all. Before we start, if you'd like to know more about where cancer came from, where it's going, and how we might beat it, my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, is out now in the UK, and you can find all the links to buy it from your favourite retailer, as well as signed book plates, stickers and limited edition hardbacks at rebelcellbook.com. Congratulations to Simon Wood, who's the winner of our prize draw for a signed copy of the UK version. We'll be running a draw for the US version soon. Unfortunately, the US print run is a victim of COVID-19 and has been delayed, but hopefully it will be arriving towards the end of October, so do listen out for that. And of course, you can still pre-order now from rebelcellbook.com. In recent years, we've seen huge advances in the way that we think about cancer and in the way that we treat it. Rather than putting patients into broad buckets bowel cancer, breast cancer and so on, we're moving towards a more sophisticated view of each individual person's disease, driven by increasing knowledge of the genetic and molecular faults that underpin them, and selecting more personalised treatments that should have a better chance of working. One of the best qualified people to talk about this new way of thinking about cancer, known as precision medicine, is Greg Simon, past president of the Biden Cancer Initiative and former executive director of the White House Cancer Moonshot Task Force under President Obama and Vice President Biden. I was lucky enough to sit down with him at the Minova Global Health Summit in Minneapolis last year for a chat about where we've come in terms of precision medicine for cancer and where we're heading in the future. Well, you know, precision medicine has two parts, being precise and being medicine. And often we know one but not the other. So we have lots of medicines, but we're not quite sure where to target them because we haven't discovered the mutation or the gene that makes precision possible with those medicines. So we're learning a lot about people through genetic testing, through wearables, through interviews and behavioral everything, but that doesn't mean that we know what to do for them. It's kind of like um, quantum physics, where when you open Schrodinger's cat in the box, maybe it's alive, maybe it's dead, but you don't know till you open the box. We're in the same way. If we know the specific conditions with people, we don't always know what to do about it. And if we have a medicine that we think works for people, we still don't know where to target it. We're at the beginning of that. We're not at the end. We're at the beginning. There has been a huge amount of excitement in recent years about smart drugs, about genetically targeted drugs, about people getting their tumor genomes sequenced. How much of this is actual reality on the ground, the reality-based medicine? Because looking at the headlines, you'd think, right, that's it, we've got it, everyone gets their tumour analysed and we know exactly what drugs to give everybody. What is the reality? Well, it's kind of like the reality with the early fax machines and the early internet. If you wait until everybody's on it, it's too late. But if you're the first one with the fax machine, who are you going to call, right? (laughs) So, yes, everyone with cancer should get sequenced, period. Why? Is it going to necessarily help them? No, but we have got to start gathering that level of information across the population. We will see things in a million people you can't see in a thousand, and we'll see things in a hundred million people you can't see in a million. But the only way to see any of it 
is to start sequencing tumors, sequencing healthy people, taking early blood detection tests, all sorts of things that we can do to monitor the development of disease. And if we're lucky enough to catch certain cancers early, we can also see what makes them deadly later and try to prevent that in the general population. It is not true that we have an answer for every question, but it is true that we need to keep asking those questions because we'll never get to the true precision medicine reality if we don't do a lot of things that might look useless right now, but they're going to be highly valuable later. One of the things I find very interesting is the assumption almost that precision medicine will mean one magic bullet. We'll know your cancer, it'll be one drug, that'll be it. But now we're looking at examples of some of these very targeted drugs and just seeing that they work for a little bit and then the cancers evolve resistance and then they're back and then you're really in trouble. So how do we try and square that circle of wanting to use this genetic knowledge to develop very precise drugs and then the problem of cancer being an evolutionary beast and just evolving its way around them. Right. The biggest important thing about cancer, with the exception of a few virus-related cancers, is that it starts as you. It's not an invader. It has the ability to use all of you to keep itself alive. And if you were watching a movie, cancer is always the hero of the movie because it doesn't want to die. It never bloody dies. It never bloody dies. <laughs> so if you look at the world from the point of view of the cancer cell, everything's lined up for it to survive, adapt, evolve, escape, because it knows more about your biology than you do, or medicine does. Modern medicine knows less about our cancer biology than cancer cells do, because cancer cells know how to hide, how to turn off the police, how to turn off the detection system, turn on the sprinkler system, spread around. It's brilliant, and we're just now catching up to it. So what is needed in terms of research to actually start understanding those processes of evolution, the way that cancer is tapping into those very deep genetic networks that are in there? Well, you raise a very complex point. So there are two parts to that. Number one, there are people who understand a lot about cells and a lot about cancer. That's sort of the job of the National Institutes of Health, is to study biology. It's not their mission to cure anything. <laughs> so if we wait until we understand everything about cancer, we won't cure anything. We know enough to take chances to try to save people from the cancers that we know how to deal with. What we don't know, we can't let stop us from doing the things that we think we should do. And it will be decades, if ever, that we understand all there is to know about cancer. But we know enough that we can start taking chances, and those chances often work out into new therapies and new treatments. Where do you think the most exciting directions are coming from? We've seen the revolution in immunotherapy, Nobel Prize for the discoverers of those inhibitors that unleash the immune system onto cancer. But where else maybe should we be looking for the next really big ideas? Well, there's no doubt that drugs that activate the immune system are the bright, shiny yellow object. There's no doubt about that. And for good reason. Cutting, burning, and radiating through surgery, chemo, and radiation cannot be the future of cancer, should not be. I have leukemia, I had chemotherapy. With my particular leukemia, CLL, nobody gets chemotherapy now. 
and I was treated only four years ago. So now they all get a pill. No more chemo, which is great because it's a chronic condition. I'll probably get it again and I'll take a pill instead of chemo three days a month. So that's progress. But the other thing is when you activate the immune system, it is a beast. And what you don't know is, is it your beast or is it not your beast? And if we activate the immune system, it's hard to shut it down. So you could get diabetes, you could get MS, you could get all kinds of autoimmune diseases and cancer, right? <laughs> so we have, to be, you have to be careful. Most people would trade diabetes for cancer, but they don't want to add it to cancer. So I think we will be dealing with the immune system now for a long, long time. And what I'm most excited about are antibodies that attack cancer cells that know if they're in a cancer cell or a healthy cell. And the reason that's important is that your healthy cells contain a lot of the same mutations as your cancer cell. So if your antibodies come in like just a shootout and they kill everybody, a lot of uh, ancillary damage to healthy cells. But if they come in and they go, you know what, I'm not in a cancer cell, I'm not turning on, and they can tell this through pH of the environment, or, uh-oh, I'm in a cancer cell, all hands on deck, we're blowing this thing up, then you don't get as sick from the treatment. So to me, the idea that a cell can look around and know where it is is mind-boggling, but people are doing that already. That excites me so much because I've been researching a book about cancer and the more you look into it, the more you realise that our bodies are just patchworks of mutation as we get older. Everything kind of gets a bit dodgy. So the big question is like, what is cancer and when is cancer? So actually deciding which is a bad cell and which is just a sad cell, I think is a really big challenge. It's a huge challenge. We way over treat a lot of cancer. And the reason is nobody wants to risk that their cancer is a watchful waiting situation instead of a full attack. But here's the problem. When you attack cancer, it often makes it worse. It's related to the war on terror. So when you drone bomb a terrorist group, the survivors become more radical, not less radical. Yeah, what doesn't kill it makes it stronger. Exactly. That's totally true of cancer. In fact, you have a system in your cells that knows when it's under attack, even the healthy cells. And what is their response? The response is to take the cell back in evolution to a more vehement, awful state, sort of like the what they call the reptile brain, road rage. So when a cell is attacked for cancer and the neighboring cell's healthy, the neighboring cell becomes the equivalent of a road rage cell and literally causes more stress and inflammation. So full-on attack is not always the right thing. Because cells just want to live. It's like cells just want to live, and that includes cancer cells. And if they were girls, they'd just want to have fun. <laughs> That's really inappropriate. <laughs> well, a little Cindy Lauper comment. <laughs> uh, finally, you've been part of the, the moonshot for cancer. We talk about magic bullets. We talk about miracle cures. What does the future cure for cancer look like? Because I sometimes think we've been a bit misled by some of this very bombastic language. Yes. We were very careful in the Cancer Moonshot to make our mission very clear, which is to double the rate of progress against cancer in everything from how to prevent it to how to survive it. It was never that we were promising to cure cancer. And there will be some cancers that we never cure, but you live with, like my leukemia. It's not cured, but it's in remission, and it's been five years. 
So if I get it again, as I said, I'll take a pill. The challenge is every cancer is different. So there are some cancers that if you catch it soon, no big deal. Other cancers, liver, brain, pancreatic, lung, are hard to detect. And once you can see it, it's too late. So we have to get better at looking in the blood and figuring out from the detritus in the blood when cancer cells are starting to make a difference in your biology. We have cancer cells all the time, and they're sloughed off and they're, they're eaten up. But when the cancer cells escape that first roundup, that's when you start seeing things in the blood. And that's why we started something called the Blood Profile Atlas Consortium, which is what can you learn about the future of cancer in a given person based on what their blood looks like today? And when we get that done, then we'll be able to say your cancer burden is low, normal, or high, meaning something's going on. We're a long way from that, but that's where we have to go. Greg Simon, former president of the Biden Cancer Initiative. Most of the focus on cancer research is aimed at adults. But given that September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, it's also important to think of the children. While cancers in children are mercifully rare, around 1,400 kids are diagnosed with cancer every year in the UK. And although survival is arguably now very good, with more than 8 in 10 of them surviving for at least 5 years on average, it's not good enough. And, of course, that's in a wealthy country with all the advantages of modern medicine. To find out where we've come in treating children with cancer, and where we need to get to in the future, I spoke with another special guest at the Minova Health Summit, Jim Downing, President and CEO of St Jude Children's Research Hospital, one of the leading US centres for research and treatment of childhood cancers. It's really quite amazing how far we've come. Um, I've been at St. Jude 33 years, and uh, St. Jude's been in existence 57 years. And if we think back to when St. Jude was first established, really the most common form of pediatric cancer, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, was really uniformly fatal. You know, less than 4% of kids would survive. And now if we come forward to today, child entering the hospital in the developed world with acute lymphoblastic leukemia has a 94-plus percent chance for survival. And so that's in a single generation to take the most common form of pediatric cancer and convert it from incurable to curable. That's an amazing level of progress, and it was done um, before precision medicine. It was done, you know, with drugs that are old. Most of them were there when pediatric cancer was uniformly lethal. It was learning how to use those drugs, learning how to carry kids through the toxicities of those drugs and keeping them from dying of bleeding or from infections. Um, so we've made great progress. But 80% um, cure in the developed world does mean one in five kids with cancer that enter the hospital are going to die of their disease. And so that's a statistic that's pretty shocking. And it still means that um, death from cancer is the major cause of death from disease in children between 1 and 15 years of age in developed countries. So what do we know about children's cancer and how they're different from adult cancers? What have we discovered now? You know, um, from a historical perspective, we always knew pediatric cancers were different. There were types of cancer that occur in the children that we never see in adults and types of adult cancers that we never see in the children. Lung cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer never occur in the kids. Colon cancer, exceedingly rare in the pediatric population. 
rhabdomyosarcoma, Ewing sarcoma, you know, certain kinds of leukemias, um, you know, certain kinds of osteosarcomas, pediatric brain tumors never seen in the adult population. So we know fundamental difference. We know most of the pediatric cancers really are not caused by um, environmental or lifestyle issues. They're really often mistakes of development that generate these cancers. But as we've progressed. And as we got into the genomics of pediatric cancer, um, we at St. Jude 10 years ago started the Pediatric Cancer Genome Project. You know, that was an uh, incredibly ambitious effort to um, map the genome of 600 pediatric cancers and their normal tissue and to do this at whole genome sequencing. And it was undertaken at a time when only one whole cancer genome had been sequenced. We thought we could sequence that many pediatric cancers over a three-year period for a cost of somewhere around $70 million or $60 million. Um, and that by doing that, we could gain great insights into the landscape of mutations that underlie pediatric cancer. So a major undertaking. Um, the output of that was incredible. So in every single pediatric cancer that we sequenced, we gained new insights. And we gained really insights that provided answers to all of those questions that we posed. New subtypes of leukemia were discovered, um, new genetic mutations on some of the incurable cancers. And then as we expanded that and did 700, and then we did, you know, 3,000 pediatric cancer survivors. So now if we look at all those mutations that we see in pediatric cancer, how do they differ from what we see in adult cancer? And it turns out almost 50% of the mutations seen that drive pediatric cancer are never seen in adult cancer. And so that was really a shock. That really um, said that these are being caused by fundamentally different mechanisms, that they were unique tumor types that were driven by unique genetic mutations, and that if we ever wanted to have to use this information to advance treatment, we were going to have to have focused efforts to develop treatments against those mutations and the pathways that they alter. That's a really important point because from what I know about developing cancer drugs and, and testing them, it tends to be that you go for the adult patients first because it's a massive market and then you kind of cast around and see, okay, are there any pediatric cancers that this yeah. works for or sort of trickle down? Yeah. So this tells you that that's a not going to work. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's not going to work. And so there are, you know, some tumor types that are in common. And so the trickle down has led to advances. Um, and actually the reverse, um, you know, if we think about the ALK mutations in lung cancer, well, the ALK mutation was first identified at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital as a fusion in anaplastic large cell lymphoma in pediatric patients, probably 15 plus years before the mutation was found in lung cancer. At that time, we approached drug companies, said, okay, here's a known kinase, a known driver of this tumor type. We know that it's a sort of credentialed target that if you inhibit this kinase activity, you can inhibit the growth. No company was interested because the number of patients that would be available to use that drug was too small. And so it wasn't until it came into lung cancer that then they were able to use it. And by then, ALK mutations were also identified in neuroblastoma, another pediatric population. And so that trickle back or trickle down did help. But it started the other direction. You know, so when we think of that landscape of pediatric cancer, how are we going to develop therapies against that? And Drug companies will play some role, but it is going to take academic efforts to really understand the biology of those mutations and try to develop lead efforts to understand how inhibiting or bypassing those pathways might lead to vulnerabilities that can then lead to treatment against those cancers. 
One thing that I do think is really interesting is the more we understand about adult cancers and the kind of spectrum of mutations that drive different cancers and realizing that actually many people's cancers are almost unique. And this idea that one size fits all, you can just treat thousands and thousands of patients with the same drug, that doesn't work. And you start to think actually, many adult cancers are getting as rare and niche as many oh, yeah. of the pediatric cancers. So this suggests that actually we need a whole rethink of how do we find new cancer drugs. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of the lesson from that, though, is that no single drug is really going to work. You know, there are the rare exceptions of cancers that respond remarkably to single agents, you know, BCR, ABL positive, CML, etc., but that we're really going to need combinations. It really is, you know, a variety of pathways that are turned on. Those pathways turned on or turned off lead to other vulnerabilities. And it is this heterogeneity within the tumors, that there is a variability within a single patient's tumor on what mutations are present where within that tumor over space and over time. It sounds like an amazing picture of progress and exciting future, but we mustn't forget that that is mostly focused on developed nations. The picture in the developing world is still very, very different. What's going on there? Yeah, in the developed world, um, there are several things that if one says, all right, how many kids are there in the world that get cancer? And so there are different groups that try to generate those estimates, and it turns out the groups don't even agree on what the true denominator is, number of children that develop cancer. And as one sort of takes those data and does better simulations, the number keeps going up. And so it's estimated that 400,000 children across the world develop cancer each year. Less than the majority of those are even diagnosed. Most just develop cancer and die. In the United States, about 16,000 kids with cancer. So we're talking a massive number across the world. And as healthcare systems, economies, political structures of countries improve, Children are no longer dying uh, in early infancy from infections or from other diseases. And so the number of children who might develop cancer increases, and that number of cancers is going to increase even further. So now we have a world where pediatric cancer is going to be increasing because kids are going to be living to that 1 to 15 year of age. They're not dying in that first year. We have healthcare systems that don't even know how to treat these children and aren't ready to treat these children. And if one looks at the economic impact in a country, you know, for life-adjusted years, you're talking about a major economic impact because if you can cure them, and we know we can cure 80% of them, that's the rest of their life that they can contribute to that economy. So you know, how does one address that? How does one raise those cure rates, um, raise the infrastructure needed to treat children with cancer? And, you know, you can go country by country or region by region, but wouldn't it be better to pull everyone together and to really develop a global alliance where we can learn across the world at the same time what works, what doesn't work, what do we learn from this culture that we might be able to transfer into this part? What are those experiments of nature that will give us new insights into cancer? Can we look at particular genetic subtypes of cancer in low- and middle-income countries where they won't be able to be treated as aggressively as they are in developed countries, and do they actually do as well? And are we over-treating in developed countries? So I like to say if we organize this and we develop this global alliance, we will learn more from low- and middle-income countries than they will learn from us. Bringing everyone together, we can accelerate progress so that one day no child does die in the dawn of life from cancer. An optimistic vision for the future from Jim Downing from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital.
And you can find out more about the St. Jude Global Alliance for Children's Cancer by going to stjude.org global, or just follow the links on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Thanks to Thermo Fisher Scientific for sponsoring this episode. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. As Greg and Jim have explained, cancer treatment increasingly relies on insights from molecular testing. So what does this actually look like on the ground? Dr. Marianne Grantham is the head of the Cytogenetics and Molecular Haematology Department at the Royal London Hospital at Barts Health NHS Trust. She and her colleagues are tasked with testing many thousands of samples every year from patients in London and the southeast of England with blood cancers or haematological malignancies to give them their scientific name, as well as solid tumours like bowel, breast or lung cancers and all the rest. This could be to confirm a new diagnosis, to help doctors select the best treatment, or to see how the disease is responding to therapy. I started by asking her how the technologies available to her slightly noisy lab have changed over recent years. So we've seen huge changes in recent years in terms of the different techniques that we've been able to use, the actual genetic changes themselves and our understanding of what we need now need to look for, and also the number of cancers where genomics has become increasingly important. So what we're really seeing is a huge number of tests being performed, and it's going up year on year. We're seeing an increase. And like I say, the actual cancers that we can now test is increasing. So If we go back perhaps five years ago, we might have been looking at the odd PCR to look at a specific mutation, whereas in the more recent years, we're now using methodologies such as next generation sequencing. So we're not just looking at one particular gene or one particular variation, but we're able to look at many, many different genes at once because now we understand how much more important this information is on the way we manage our patients. And I guess the big question really is, Does it work? Are you actually seeing changes and improvements in patient care, perhaps even in survival, based on bringing in these kinds of new technologies? Absolutely. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic that we now have the opportunity to give patients different options based on the genomics. So rather than just using generic treatments given to any particular cancer, we're actually able to really target that individual's cancer based on this genomic and make sure that we're giving them treatments that are really going to work whilst avoiding unnecessary side effects. So, for example, the treatment landscape for things like non-small cell lung cancer has vastly changed as targeted therapies have become available. And also in haematological malignancies, we now know that biomarker-specific therapies can really enhance patient outcomes and reduce those awful side effects that we know come alongside those aggressive and standard chemotherapies. So we're really seeing fantastic improvements in patient survival because we're really targeting the cause of that patient's cancer. 
And what about the time it takes from when you get the sample to actually getting something that a doctor could say, okay, here's something I can base a decision on. I was talking the other day to uh, Mike Stratton, who's the director of the Sanger Institute, and we were reminiscing about how long sequencing anything used to take, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago. How long does it take to actually get a timely answer uh, that a doctor can then use to direct someone's treatment? We were quite right, absolutely. Back in the day, things used to take a really long time. You know, we would be turning around results in sort of a month or so, partly because the results that we were looking for at that time didn't have the same impact on patient management that they do today. Um, And obviously, as you can well imagine, everybody wants things as quickly as possible. And certainly for patients themselves, the period of sitting and waiting to determine what's going to happen can be huge hugely distressing. So the sooner we can give people, our clinicians and our patients, an answer and and a definitive treatment plan, the better. And so really, we're trying to make sure that we can deliver our results as quickly as possible. And I would say that, you know, five to seven days is definitely achievable. And in fact, nowadays, you can even get that much faster within um, anywhere between 24 and 72 hours from receipt of sample to a meaningful result. And that really, really helps that clinician decide what am I going to do with that patient and what options can I give them? It certainly has been a difference from, I remember the early days of the studies talking about this when it was months to get, you know, a whole genome sequence from a tumour. And it's just incredible the advances in the technology that bring it down to a matter of days. Yeah, absolutely. And as the technology improves and new systems become available, these results are going to be made quicker and quicker. So it's not unrealistic to think that we can have a meaningful genomic diagnosis within 24 hours or even perhaps shorter in the future from receipt of that sample into the laboratory. I've just finished writing a book that's all about cancer and evolution and genetics and how tumours are sort of genetically evolving systems. And one of the things that really became clear to me is that although the idea of precision oncology, you know, molecularly testing someone's tumour and using that information to shape their treatment is really exciting, tumours change, they evolve resistance and that it's not just going to be a, we tested you once, that's one and done, that there's going to be a need for retesting. So I guess if it's easier, if it's quicker and it's cheaper to do this, that also starts to become really feasible. Absolutely. And the great thing, for example, about next generation sequencing technology is you're not limited to the number of targets you can test. And the panels that you run can become flexible and can be adapted over time as we understand more about the different targets that we need to look for. And so we are already testing patients, not only at the beginning at the presentation, but perhaps after they've had treatment to make sure that their disease has gone away. And also, like you say, to look for those resistance mutations as clones change and evolve so that we can adapt our treatment to tackle that new clone and that new disease. And we see that and are doing that a lot already in terms of solid tumours in non-small cell lung cancer, but also in our haematological malignancies. We know that certain cancers develop these resistance mutations and we need to look for them to make sure that we tailor our treatment accordingly. All this kind of genetic testing technology, it does sound really complicated. I think I've got in my mind the idea of like some enormous beige box with lights and bleeping things on the front. Like, How complicated is this technology? How accessible would it be to a hospital that's not as big and flashy as the one that you work in? 
Absolutely, I completely understand and I felt exactly the same way several years ago. It, it feels that it might be intimidating but actually the advances that have been made with this technology is that really isn't the case anymore. The developments that have been made are amazing and the people that have thought these machines up and this technology up is just phenomenal. Uh, the way that they've been designed to be so streamlined and efficient that they really are very much a plug and play kind of approach and the associated software and computer programs that you can access to accompany your machinery it means that you don't really need to be that super bioinformatics boffin that perhaps you used to need and that these technologies really are accessible to a pathology laboratory that don't have their own specific genomics department and that's really really fantastic in terms of enabling that equity of access to patients no matter where they are. And finally, looking for your sort of vision to the future, what would you like to see the patient care pathway looking like incorporating all these genomic technologies? What is sort of the the cancer care vision of the future as far as you're concerned? Well, it's definitely a very exciting time and a real vast improvement on, on years gone by. And I think having really comprehensive genomic profiling available for our patients is so critical. But having that in that timely fashion, so not having to wait now months and months or even weeks and weeks for that data, but having it in a real clinically appropriate time and understanding what to do with that information. Something that is very important is understanding that genomic data in isolation is often meaningless and it's really important that we integrate that information with other disciplines within pathology and within the patient pathway. So using it in conjunction with our morphology, our histology, our immunophenotyping, so we can integrate it together to give the patient the most effective diagnosis and treatment plan going forward. And really mainstreaming that genetic data, I think it's going to be critical for the future. I think genomics has got a really exciting and important place in a modern healthcare service. Marianne Grantham from the Royal London Hospital. As Marianne says, time is of the essence when it comes to the journey from a patient's cancer sample to an actionable report on their doctor's desk. We've certainly come a long way from the days when it would take months to genetically analyse a tumour sample. But... When it comes to treating cancer, every day counts. Kim Wood is from Thermo Fisher Scientific's Clinical Sequencing Division, working on next-generation sequencing and the technologies that can be used by pathology labs to analyse tumour samples and help doctors decide on the best course of action. Right now, their latest sequencing machine, Iron Torrent Genexus, is still being put through its paces in research settings, meaning that it's currently designated for research use only. But plans are underway to get it approved for routine medical use in Europe and the UK within the next few years. So what does the future look like for the use of genetic and genomic technologies in cancer? I asked Kim to gaze into her crystal ball, or rather her Genexus machine. (laughs) Uh, It's actually something that we're really, really proud of. It's the world's first turnkey next generation sequencing system. So if we put it into context, previous next generation sequencing systems that have been on the market in the past, in order to get to that end result, there's actually modular pieces of equipment that are needed in order to get to that result. So there's lots of user interaction, preparing that sample for analysis, the sequencing, etc. What Genexus is, is a fully integrated system. So it's one unit that does everything. 
So what advantages does this new system have for users? What, what is the, the future of this process actually going to look like in a lab? Uh, so some of the things that this new system can do is it's a really, really quick touch point at the beginning. So you walk up to the system, you place your extracted nucleic acid onto the system along with reagents that are cartridge based. And that takes no more than five minutes. And believe me, we've timed it. You close the door, you start the run and you walk away. And it's as simple as that. Uh, and the results become available within 24 hours and they're meaningful results. So the important thing with any of these kind of tests is that the information that comes out is actually useful, that doctors can take it, look at it and think, OK, I can construct a treatment plan for my patients. So with these new technologies that are coming online and coming soon, what kind of outputs will come from that? What sort of information can doctors expect to be able to get? We've worked really, really hard to make the, all of our systems a solution-based system and for it to be as user-friendly as possible. So that includes not only providing the technology, but assays as well. And what this system generates is not just a bunch of raw data that's meaningless. It, it actually, we provide the tools and, and that are needed to make sense of that data and to slim down that data into something that's meaningful. And how long does it take to get that kind of data? So, and this is, the, this is a huge step change for us and it's something we're incredibly proud of. So if you, uh, in context of uh, previous systems that have been on the market, the, the quickest time period that we've seen for next generation sequencing systems has been four days, but routinely up to two weeks. The Genexus integrated sequencer provides uh, a sample to report within 24 hours. This may be a bit of a how long is a piece of string question, but when do you envisage that this technology might actually be available for clinical use? You know, Because it sounds amazing if you can cut the time to getting an answer, getting something meaningful to help guide patients' treatments. So how long are we looking at? For Genexus, you are completely right. It's how long is a piece of string? We're, we're actively going through that process now. The process is quite lengthy, as it should be to register for a medical device. But we do have a timeline in place. And so we're committed to uh, register the Genexus system in Europe quite soon. So fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. We're really excited about it. And just broadening out a bit, um, what are your hopes for the future of this kind of technology? What would you like to see for the future of cancer diagnostics and cancer treatment personally? I feel incredibly lucky to work where I work and I suppose that you know can come across I'm blushing as I'm saying it but it's a personal journey for me and it's a personal journey for many of my colleagues that work within this division of Thermo Fisher. I've recently witnessed my mum being diagnosed with cancer. She had treatment and then she relapsed and everybody's experience with cancer is different but for, for my family the most agonising time was waiting for the results and during this time just realised um, just how impactful this paradigm shift in precision medicine and precision oncology has to change the outcomes of cancer patients in the future. And I can honestly say that during that time of realising that she'd relapsed with cancer, before we could get to uh, these are the test results, this is the plan, this is the way we're going to move forward with the treatment and this is the backup plan, that for me was the most agonising period that we've been through, actually more so than the treatment itself. And so for me, anything that can provide or facilitate a step change in precision oncology and also speed up that result and accessibility to 
the most comprehensive genomic profiling to give the most actionable results in a short time period from a personal opinion that's for me is the, the most exciting thing so being able to work with a, a team that's passionate about this and it's not just a vision that we've sat around a boardroom and said yeah this is what we're going to go for it's made up of, uh, of people that work within this team that have had personal experience both in cancer and, and in other diseases where precision medicine in general can provide a step change. Kim Wood from Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can find out more about their new Genexus system, which is currently for research use only, at oncomine.com slash genexus oncology. That's O-N-C-O-M-I-N-E dot com slash G-E-N-E-X-U-S dash oncology. And there are more links to information about the transformative power of genomic sequencing for the future of cancer treatment on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And finally, it's time for a quick look at what's in the latest episode of the podcast from Heredity, the journal of the Genetic Society. For more than a century, geneticists have relied on model organisms, specific species of animals, plants and microbes that have been characterised and studied in great detail. And if you're a plant geneticist, you've probably heard of Arabidopsis thaliana, which we talked about back in episode 7 of our very first series. But now there's a new model plant in town, the yellow monkey flower, or Mimulus guttatus, to give it its full name. In this episode of the Heredity podcast, host James Bergen chats with Alex Twyford from the University of Edinburgh about the complicated genetics of these curious plants and explores the issue of plant blindness, the unfortunate tendency of biologists to overlook the research value and the potential of plants. If you're out and about doing field work in the UK or walking along the riverside, you might see monkey flowers. They've become widely naturalised in the UK but they're native to North America. And they're really exciting because they're emerging as a novel model system for studying evolutionary and ecological processes. So we have Arabidopsis as one of our main plant model systems, but you can't do everything with one plant. And monkey flowers are really fascinating because they occur all the way from the Mexican border up to the north in Alaska. And across that range, they show amazing variation in their ecology. So you get some plants which will grow in thermal hot springs where the soil is literally bubbling with boiling water and they've adapted to that environment. You get other populations which grow in copper mines and they've adapted to copper in the soil. And then some populations which grow right on the seafront and they're exposed to really salty conditions. And I think it's that ecological variation which has captured people's attention over the last 50 years. If I'm lecturing students they may come up to me afterwards and say, I enjoyed your lecture. I've always found plants boring because all people talk about is stomata or phloem and xylem. And I find it disappointing because so often we focus in on those mechanistic differences, which are interesting. I'm not downplaying that, but they're not the things that really excite me. And for me as a plant biologist, and I'm proud to call myself a botanist, there's a lot of really exciting aspects and most of them around plant diversity. So there are hundreds of thousands of different plant species 
and the ecological variation is remarkable. All you have to do is walk in any natural environment, particularly somewhere like a tropical forest, and you'll be surrounded by hundreds of different plant species, all adapted to different conditions and interacting in different ways. So I think that what we call plant blindness or lack of plant awareness is disappointing. And I suppose I'm trying to inspire other people to sort of open their eyes and think more about plants because there's a lot we can learn from plants that we can't learn from vertebrates. You can find that full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. That's all for now. Thanks very much to Thermo Fisher for sponsoring this episode of Genetics Unzipped. And if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, do just drop me a line at podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. We'll be back next time for more from the world of genes, genomes and DNA. And before that, there's another bonus episode of the Genetics Shambles to fill your ears. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip, and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I promise it does make a difference, it does something to the algorithm, and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo was designed by James Mayle. And audio production is by the lovely Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.